This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of femoral acetabular impingement from the knee and sports section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI, is the abnormal contact between the femur and acetabulum, which may lead to labral damage, various degrees of chondral injury, and progressive hip pain. Diagnosis is made radiographically, with hip radiograph showing an aspherical femoral head, otherwise known as cam impingement, or anterosuperior acetabular overhang, known as pincer impingement, or a combination of both. Treatment may be non-operative or operative, depending on the chronicity of symptoms, patient age, patient activity demands, and development of secondary insult to the hip joint, for example, labral tear and secondary osteoarthritis. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, femoral and acetabular deformity is common in the general population and is often asymptomatic. However, it may become more apparent with participation in activities requiring extreme range of motion, for example, ballet, gymnastics, and martial arts. Moving on to etiology, with respect to pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury for femoral acetabular impingement is that the proximal femur abuts the acetabulum with range of motion, especially during flexion. The pathoanatomy involves cam impingement and pincer impingement. Cam impingement refers to the femoral-based disorder, usually in young athletic males. It occurs if the femoral head-slash-neck bone is too broad, mostly on the anterolateral neck. It is characterized by any of the following. A decreased head-to-neck ratio, an aspherical femoral head, decreased femoral offset, and femoral neck retroversion. This sphericity mismatch causes shearing at the chondral labral junction, leading to cartilage delamination and labral separation. Moving on to pincer impingement, this refers to an acetabular-based disorder, usually in active middle-aged women. This may manifest with anterosuperior acetabular rim overcoverage, acetabular retroversion, acetabular protrusio, and or coxa profunda. In addition, the femoral neck impinges and crushes the labrum, creating intrasubstance tearing. This levers the femoral head into the postero-inferior acetabulum, leading to a contra-coup cartilaginous injury. The pathoanatomy of femoral acetabular impingement can also be a combined cam slash pincer impingement, which can include both patient populations, and of course refers to combinations of cam impingement and pincer impingement, which can be seen in up to 80% of patients. Finally, know that a skiffy deformity causes variable patterns of impingement. Associated injuries with femoral acetabular impingement include labral degeneration and tears, cartilage damage and flap tears, as well as secondary hip osteoarthritis. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over osteology, muscles, as well as the capsule and ligaments. So starting with the osteology, the hip joint is a highly congruous joint formed by the acetabulum and the femur. The acetabulum is formed by the confluence of the ischium, ilium, and pubic bones. As far as the femur, this has a spherical head on the neck and is antiverted 15 degrees in relation to the femoral condyles. Moving on to the muscles, there are five major muscle groups acting across the hip. Hip flexors, extensors, abductors, adductors, and external rotators. And finally, moving on to the capsule and ligaments, there are three ligaments that form the joint capsule the iliofemoral ligament, or the Y ligament of Bigelow, the ischiofemoral ligament, and the pubofemoral ligament. Moving on to the labrum, this is a horseshoe-shaped fibrocartilaginous tissue extending around the periphery of the acetabulum. This is connected by the transverse acetabular ligament at the inferior acetabulum and increases the acetabular volume and provides a suction seal. 
Finally, moving on to the ligamentum teres, this extends from the cotyloid fossa to the femoral head. This has negligible contribution to the vascular supply of the femoral head in an adult. Moving on to the presentation of femoral acetabular impingement, common symptoms include activity-related groin or hip pain, which is exacerbated by hip flexion, difficulty sitting, mechanical hip symptoms of clicking or popping, and these patients can present with gluteal or trochanteric pain due to aberrant gait mechanics. On exam, motion assessment may reveal limited hip flexion of less than 90 degrees, especially with internal rotation of less than 5 degrees. Motion assessment may also have a positive anterior impingement test in which flexion, adduction, and internal rotation elicits pain. Inspection may reveal an externally rotated extremity, which can be due to post-skiffy deformity. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP with a true lateral view, where the hip is placed in 15 degrees of internal rotation. Optional views include a done or modified done view and a false profile view to assess anterior coverage of the femoral head. The false profile view is taken in a standing position at an angle of 65 degrees between the pelvis and the film. Findings may include asphericity and contour of the femoral head and neck. This can be referred to as a pistol grip deformity, which indicates cam impingement. As far as other findings, be sure to examine for acetabular protrusio, retroversion, and coxa profunda. The crossover sign indicates acetabular retroversion in pincer impingement. You may also notice a posterior wall sign. In terms of important measurements, the ones to know include the alpha angle and the head-neck offset ratio. The alpha angle is measured on a frog-leg lateral radiograph. First, a line is drawn connecting the center of the femoral head and the center of the femoral neck. The second line is drawn from the center of the femoral head to the point on the anterolateral head-neck junction where prominence begins. The intersection of these two lines forms the alpha angle. As far as normal values, values of greater than 42 degrees are suggestive of a head-neck offset deformity, and greater than 50 to 55 degrees indicates cam deformity. Moving on to head-neck offset ratio, this is measured from the lateral radiographs. Line number one is drawn through the center of the long axis of the femoral neck. Line two is drawn parallel to line one through the anteriormost aspect of the femoral neck. Line number three is drawn parallel to line two through the anteriormost aspect of the femoral head. And the head-neck offset ratio is calculated by measuring the distance between lines two and three and dividing by the diameter of the femoral head. As far as normal values, if the ratio is less than 0.17, a cam deformity is likely present. Other measurements to know include the lateral center edge angle or angle of Weiberg, where the normal value is under 40 degrees, an anterior center edge angle, where the normal value is over 20 degrees, and the acetabular index or tonus roof angle, where the normal value is above zero degrees. A CT scan can be used as an adjunct to assess for structural abnormalities. In terms of views, 3D reconstructions aid in preoperative assessment. An MRI and or MR arthrogram is the best modality to evaluate for articular cartilage and labral damage, and this can assess the anatomy of the femoral head slash neck junction for abnormalities. In terms of views, ensure the MRI is formatted to be in line with the femoral neck, and findings may include labral fraying or frank tears, chondral damage, and or subchondral cyst formation. As far as the differential diagnosis for femoral acetabular impingement, various pathologies will refer pain to the hip region. The ones to know include ischial femoral impingement, adductor strains and athletic pubalgia, lumbar radiculopathy, iliosose pathology, and hip instability. Treatment of femoral acetabular impingement can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes activity modification, 
PT, and NSAIDs, and this is indicated for the minimally symptomatic patient where there is no mechanical symptoms. Specific modalities involve a period of rest or activity modification followed by physical therapy to address kinetic chain abnormalities, and of course non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can be used for pain control. Operative options include arthroscopic osteoplasty, open surgical hip dislocation and osteoplasty, periacetabular osteotomy, and hip arthroplasty. Arthroscopic osteoplasty is indicated for a symptomatic patient with mechanical symptoms. It's also indicated when there's failure of non-operative measures and when the patient is non-arthritic. As far as outcomes, recent literature supports arthroscopy and shows equivalent results to open hip surgery. However, there's decreased functional and symptomatic outcomes in patients with evidence of hip osteoarthritis with a tonus grade of 1 or greater. Moving on to open surgical hip dislocation and osteoplasty, this was previously the gold standard for patients with clinical signs and structural evidence of impingement. This is indicated in the setting of preserved articular cartilage, correctable deformity, and reasonable expectations. And it's also indicated in the setting of significant femoral deformity, such as in the cases of residual skiffy or Perthes disease. Moving on to periacetabular osteotomy, this is indicated for structural deformity of the acetabulum with significant retroversion. And finally, hip arthroplasty is indicated in an arthritic and end-stage hip degeneration. However, it's controversial regarding hip resurfacing versus total hip arthroplasty. Now, let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with arthroscopic osteoplasty, the approach is the arthroscopic approach to the hip. In terms of soft tissue, a capsulotomy is required to access the peripheral component to address the cam lesion. Know that labral repair slash refixation is required following acetabuloplasty if the labrum is destabilized. In terms of bony work, you will trim the femoral head slash neck in cam impingement. And then acetabular rim trimming is followed by labral debridement versus repair slash reconstruction. Know that isolated labral debridement of labral tears will not provide long-term benefit without treatment of the underlying bony pathology. As far as outcomes of arthroscopic osteoplasty, this has equivalent success compared to open procedures. Complications include neuropraxias associated with hip arthroscopy. Moving on to a GANS open surgical hip dislocation and osteoplasty, the approach is a Cochrane-Langenbach incision while in the lateral decubitus position and the gluteus maximus is split. A digastric trochanteric flip is performed and the fragment is mobilized anteriorly. A capsulotomy is then performed and the hip is dislocated anteriorly and the ligamentum teres is likely transected. This allows safe access to the proximal femur and acetabulum. Alternatively, a direct anterior approach may be utilized but grants limited visualization to the posterior acetabulum. As far as bony work, this is the same as arthroscopic osteoplasty, which includes trimming the femoral head slash neck in a cam impingement and acetabular rim trimming followed by labral debridement versus repair slash reconstruction. Again, know that isolated labral debridement of labral tears will not provide long-term benefit without treatment of the underlying bony pathology. As far as soft tissue work in a GANS open surgical hip dislocation and osteoplasty, labral repair slash refixation slash reconstruction is required following acetabuloplasty if the labrum is destabilized. As far as outcomes, a GANS open surgical hip dislocation and osteoplasty provides wide exposure of the femoral head and acetabulum while preserving all external rotators and blood supply to the femoral head, which is the medial circumflex femoral artery. There's also no increase in AVN risk, and the median expected time to return to sports is 7 months in adolescent athletes. Complications include trochanteric hip pain. Finally, let's quickly talk about a combined arthroscopic and limited open approach, 
which combines aspects of both procedures to gain access to the entire femur and acetabulum, and early results are promising. Now let's quickly talk about some postoperative complications in general, and the ones to know include femoral neck fracture, heterotopic ossification, and residual deformity following arthroscopic treatment. So starting with femoral neck fracture, the femoral neck is at risk during femoroplasty, and the risk is minimized by limiting the depth of the femoral head neck osteoplasty to less than 30% of femoral neck diameter and using multiple fluoroscopy views of the femoral neck during the procedure. Residual deformity following arthroscopic treatment is also minimized using multiple fluoroscopy views. Finally, in terms of prognosis of femoral acetabular impingement, the natural history is believed to lead to early-onset hip dysfunction and arthritis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, Persistent hip pain necessitating surgical revision following arthroscopic treatment of femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI, is most commonly due to which of the following? And the choices are 1. Progressive osteoarthritis, 2. Heterotopic ossification, 3. Residual FAI, 4. Iatrogenic soft tissue injury, and 5. Avascular necrosis of the femoral head. The correct answer to this question is 3. Residual FAI. So the most common reason for persistent pain and the need for surgical revision following the arthroscopic treatment of FAI is residual FAI. To quickly review, indications for hip arthroscopy have expanded in recent years to include the treatment of FAI in young adults along with labral tears, chondral defects, and ligamentum teres lesions. Adequate preoperative assessment and patient selection remains critical for successful outcomes. Several studies have reported that the most common reason for failed hip arthroscopy is due to residual impingement. The most commonly reported complication with hip arthroscopy is iatrogenic chondral injury, whereas the most common neuromuscular complication is traction-related pudendal nerve injury. Revision options following failed hip arthroscopy include repeat arthroscopy, arthroscopy with limited open capsulorophy, periacetabular osteotomy, surgical hip dislocation, and arthroplasty. Philippon et al. performed a retrospective review of 37 cases of revision hip arthroscopy to determine the most common reasons for revision hip arthroscopy. 95% of these revisions included persistent FAI with an average time to revision surgery of 20.5 months. They concluded that the most common reason for hip revision in this series was persistent impingement. Bogunovich et al. conducted a prospective database study and identified 58 patients or 60 hips with a history of failed arthroscopic procedures with the goal of identifying why these procedures failed. The most common reason for revision preservation procedures in this study was persistent FAI. The authors concluded that residual or unaddressed anatomical defects of the hip and underlying arthritic changes were the major reasons for failure of index hip arthroscopy procedures. And moving on to the final question, a 29-year-old male who underwent right hip arthroscopy for femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI, two years ago presents for initial evaluation. He reports significant improvement in symptoms since the time of surgery, but has never had full relief and continues to have activity-related groin pain and discomfort with deep hip flexion activities. Review of arthroscopic photos from his index procedure confirm intact cartilage surfaces at that time. He has done extensive physical therapy without further improvement. Hip flexion, adduction, and internal rotation reproduce his pain. Which of the following radiographic findings are indicative of the most likely reason for his persistent symptoms? And the choices are 1. Tonus angle of 8 degrees, 2. Alpha angle of 60 degrees, 
three, lateral center edge angle of 25 degrees, four, anterior center edge angle of 27 degrees, and five, medial aspect of the femoral head is seven millimeters lateral to the ilioischial line. The correct answer to this question is two, alpha angle of 60 degrees. So this patient has symptoms consistent with persistent FAI despite surgical treatment. Alpha angles of greater than 42 degrees are suggestive of femoral head-neck offset deformity, which is a contributor to FAI. Various factors may contribute to development of persistence of pain after hip arthroscopy directed at FAI. Chondral issues, postoperative adhesions, labor lesions, and instability all merit consideration, but persistent structural deformity is the most common reason for failed FAI arthroscopy requiring revision. Philippon et al. retrospectively reviewed 37 revision hip arthroscopies performed by the senior author. All were indicated for persistent pain, and 36 of 37 had radiographic evidence of FAI at the time of revision. Bogunovich et al. analyzed 60 hips with a history of failed hip arthroscopy. Residual FAI was identified as the etiology for failure in 68%. Revision procedures included both open and arthroscopic hip preservation, as well as total hip arthroplasty procedures. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, tonus angles of 0 to 10 degrees are considered normal. A negative tonus angle would indicate overcoverage of the femoral head consistent with FAI. Answer 3, lateral center edge angles of 25 to 45 degrees are considered normal. Answer 4, anterior center edge angles of 25 to 50 degrees are considered normal. And finally, answer 5, femoral head position more than 10 millimeters lateral to the ilioischial line is considered dysplastic less than 10 millimeters is considered normal. That's all for this review about femoral acetabular impingement. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.